Hi, and welcome to Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. I'm Dr. Katherine Troyer. I'm the Assistant Director of the Collaborative for Learning and Teaching here at Trinity University. What defines a great professor? Well, Playing in the Sandbox is a podcast series that answers this question with one word, play. I think most will agree that the best professors and instructors of higher education are those who promote and exemplify passion, curiosity, exploration, experimentation, and the willingness to fail and try again. In other words, as this podcast argues, the best professors are those who meaningfully and thoughtfully play. This is episode one entitled, It's Time to Play. Normally I want to hop right into the topic at hand, but today I want to take a couple of minutes to explain the reasoning behind why I wanted to start a podcast to give you an idea of what the general form of the podcast series is going to look like as we move forward. And then also to introduce you to the big topic of the series itself, this idea of playing in the sandbox. There are a couple of reasons for why I thought a podcast might be an intriguing option of the services that the collaborative offered. And the two big reasons are that the collaborative does a fantastic job of offering all of these programs where if you come to us, we feed you, and then you get to hear guest speakers or participate in workshops. But sometimes you aren't in a position to come to us. And I think that the collaborative and really all faculty development centers need to think about how we can also be coming to you. Um, and that might mean listening to a podcast while you're driving to work, or it might mean just sitting in your office with the door closed and decompressing for a moment from all of your interactions with other humans, but still wanting to you know, have some thoughts. And so I see the podcast as being one way that we can be where you need us to be um, when it's most convenient for you. I also think though that podcasts are about conversations. And so even though this is a lot of me talking by default, I hope that you will engage in a conversation back by letting me know thoughts or ideas or things that come to mind when you were listening, things that would have been even better suggestions that I could then in a following podcast share with everyone. But also I hope that this becomes food for thought as you engage in conversations with other faculty and staff um, on campus and, and as you engage in conversations with students. Because I think that's what's the best part about being at a university is that you are in a space where you get to have these conversations. For this reason, I see the podcast as being primarily an informal conversation. I, I would like it to be the equivalent of somebody stopping by your office and saying, hey, I have this thought, what are your, what are your thoughts? Um, or that conversation that sometimes happens in the hallway that sparks all these further ideas. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to be well-informed, because I, I think good conversations are well-informed. So I'm going to bring in evidence-based practices. I'm going to reference the scholarship of teaching and learning and give you some concrete information. But I want it to have that feel of like, huh, that's interesting. Here's how I could apply that to what I'm doing. And so to that end, the other thing that I will be incorporating into each episode are some very tangible takeaways that you can say, well, here's how I could apply this directly to my classroom. 
In this episode, I've broken them up into two categories. The things that we can be doing, such as intentionality of language, thinking more thoughtfully about the transparency of design, as well as just reminding and showing our students how we play, as well as the things that we can be having our students do in and out of the classroom, such as offering them more opportunities to practice the skills and tasks that we want them to perform, as well as using prediction as a powerful way to help students build connections. One of the things that I think is very daunting about the scholarship of teaching and learning is just that it's a whole field unto itself. And there's so much out there that it's almost impossible to dedicate your life to that and your content area, not without like giving a family or something like that, right? Like it's just so much. And I think it's daunting even for people like in my position where that's that's our what we're engaging with on a daily basis, because again, there's just so much out there. So I was thinking, how do I share all of these seemingly disparate techniques and best practices and evidence-based methodologies and not have it feel like this just sort of hodgepodge of, I hope something that I say helps. And I kept coming back to this idea of play because to me, play is, is the sort of fundamental way that we can think about the things that are most effective and least effective in getting our students to learn. It, it becomes a way to think about why we chose our fields ourselves. It just sort of becomes this really grounding principle. And of course, the title playing in the sandbox is a little like on the nose because you know here in the collaborative we actually have a space called the sandbox so it works really nicely in that respect because it's like this hey you should come visit us sort of subtle not so subtle message but it, it's more than that because as i was thinking about this idea of like what is the sandbox for and where do we play and why do we talk about playing in the sandbox it reminded me of this conversation that i watched a video on um, by this band called okay go OK Go is a band that makes good music and fantastic music videos. Um, they have one that where a car makes all of the different instrument sounds. They have one that's in zero gravity. They have one that the entire sequence of events only takes a couple of seconds and then they make it down into slow-mo. If you have a minute, you should definitely watch some of their music videos. But because that's kind of what they're known for, one of the questions that get asked all the time, of course, is, well, where do you come up with your ideas? And they had this to say, so this is a direct quote from them. So what we do is try to identify some place where there might just be a ton of those untried ideas. We try to find a sandbox and then we gamble a whole bunch of our resources on getting in that sandbox and playing because we have to trust that it's the process in the sandbox that will reveal to us which ideas are not only surprising, but surprisingly reliable there's something almost haunting to me about that description because when I heard it, I was like, yes, this is what makes me all excited. This is what makes me passionate about what I'm doing at a university. And again, I think that the actual sandbox that the collaborative has becomes a perfect space to be thinking about some of these ideas and to be seeing which ones are surprising and which ones are surprisingly reliable. But I want to argue that it shouldn't just be the little sandbox room in the library 
that we think of our, as being our place to play. We need to start thinking about the entire university as this place where play can happen thoughtfully and meaningfully. So I'll explain why play and, and all of that in just a minute, but just because thesis statements make me happy, the thesis statement for today's podcast is essentially that play is not just something that's fun or interesting, but it is actually fundamental to our successes as researchers, as teachers, and as advocates for a liberal arts education. And so today's entire podcast, and really in some ways the entire series, is going to be predicated on this idea that play is fundamental to our success. Before I jump into the goodness of play, I feel like it's worth addressing the counter argument because I can hear that like perspective screaming in the back of my head like, but have you considered this, Katie? Or riddle me that. Um, and, and so I want to address those big like red flags that might be flashing as you hear what will essentially be me going on for several more minutes about the goodness that is play. So the first thing that I want to make clear is that I'm not talking about something that is silly, nor am I advocating that we cease the seriousness of what we're doing here on campus. Um, I think we tend to think of play and seriousness as being on this dichotomy and you're either one or the other. But I really like how Tim Brown, the CEO of IDEO, which is an innovation company, puts it. And he says that it's very easy to fall into the trap that these states are absolute. You're either playful or you're serious and you can't be both. But that's not really true, he says. You can be a serious professional adult and at times be playful. It's not an either or, it's an and. You can be serious and play. So, so the first thing is, is that I'm asking us to be playful, but I'm not asking us to be silly or frivolous in our behavior. I'm also not necessarily advocating for games or gamification in terms of pedagogy and classroom practices. I think that bringing games into the classroom can be delightful. And there's a lot of really interesting research that I'm more than happy to talk to people about, about why true gamification, not just like giving people badges, but true gamification can actually really radically refocus um, what's happening in the classroom. But again, that's not what I'm advocating for here. What I'm talking about is the idea that play, the concept of play, is itself about exploratory behavior. When we engage in play, whether it is in a game form of some kind, or it's just sort of this idle doing of things, we are saying, what would happen if? What would happen if I scored a basket for my team? What would happen if I defeated the um, bad guy through this particular move? Right? Like we're constantly asking ourselves in most realms where we play, what would happen if? And so that's where I want us to be thinking about play in this episode and kind of throughout the series is that play is about an exploratory behavior. Dr. Stuart Brown, who was an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, and also the founder of the National Institute for Play, said that nothing lights up the brain like play. 
And if you kind of look into some of his theories and ideas, he says that the thing that's unique about humans is that we're really crafted and built to be playing our entire lives. And his argument, which I find rather profound, is that the opposite of play is not work. It's actually depression. I think at one point, all of us chose our field in part because we enjoy playing in it. We enjoy playing with numbers or we enjoy playing with a certain question and trying to figure out the answer or playing in the act of reading a specific work of literature again and again. I think something happens maybe along the way that is very unfortunate. I mean, just sort of a natural consequence of, of our research and our enjoyment within a field, eventually becoming a profession of some kind. To give you an example, um, Dr. Richard Feynman, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, gave this sort of talk about his wobble equations. And he said, and this is a quote from him, then I had another thought. And again, this is Dr. Richard Feynman. He said, physics disgusts me a little bit now, but I used to enjoy doing physics. Why did I enjoy it? I used to play with it. I used to do whatever I felt like doing. It didn't have to do with whether it was for the development of nuclear physics, but whether it was interesting and amusing for me to play with. And so he said that eventually he developed this new attitude. And he said, now that I'm burned out and I'll never accomplish anything, I've got this nice position at the university teaching classes, which I rather enjoy. And just like I read the Arabian Nights for pleasure, I'm going to play with physics whenever I want to, without worrying about any importance whatsoever. And she said that this was a really freeing experience because with that attitude, which admittedly, it's never good if you feel burned out, right? But like, but with the attitude of, uh, I'm just going to play with the thing that I love just for the sake of doing it again. He said that he was in the cafeteria and there was a gentleman messing around with some plates and spinning them. And so not as I would, but as I imagine a physicist would, he began to notice the wobble effect. And so just for pure kicks and giggles, he started to work out what the motion of the mass particles was and to try to determine the acceleration balance. And he said that he went back to a colleague and he said, I've noticed something really interesting. Let me tell you it. And his colleague said, but what's the importance of this observation? So what? Why does it matter? And Dr. Feynman said that he replied by saying, there's no importance whatsoever. I'm just doing it for the fun of it. What's fantastic about this story, though, is that Feynman admits himself that that wasn't entirely true. He said that it was effortless because he was allowing himself to play and it was easy because he was just having fun. He was immersing himself in this exploratory behavior for the sake of the exploratory behavior. And there was really in his mind no obvious importance in playing with this, this wobble effect. But he said that, of course, it ended up being very significant. Um, and so he kind of ends this talk by saying the diagrams and the whole business that I got the Nobel Prize for came from that piddling around with the wobbling plate. We got into our fields because we enjoyed playing with something, a question, a subject matter, an author, an effect. I think it becomes really easy though for us to sort of forget about that play or 
to play in our research, but to feel like maybe the classroom is, is not a space for that exploratory behavior, that playfulness to occur. But I want to argue that play, while being about enjoyment, is about so many more things that we should be encouraging in our pedagogy. Because play is about passion and it's about curiosity. It's about forming connections between thoughts and it's about building a sense of community. It's about dialogue. And ultimately, it's about a willingness to be wrong until you can be right. To me, that is exactly what I want my students to walk away with in terms of their understanding of a topic. I want them to know that it is okay to keep working on a problem, but to do so with curiosity and passion. I want them to want to have a dialogue because they're that excited about the subject matter. So hopefully by now I've convinced you that play can be important, that play can be meaningful. So if you're buying the argument so far, you might be beginning to wonder, well, then how do we play? How do we sort of rethink what's happening in our classroom and our interactions with students to, to frame it within this, this idea of play? And the answer is to be serious about play, to think very meaningfully and thoughtfully about the fact that play has very specific rules and rhythms. There are different forms and different purposes for different types of play. And it's something that we don't just say, okay, time to play, but we think very meaningfully about what does it mean to be playing in this moment? Does it mean experiments and, and constantly, you know, getting it incorrect and doing it again? Does it mean collaboration? So I do my part and then I pass figuratively the ball to someone else and then they do their part, right? It's about thinking about what it is that we're wanting to get out of this particular activity of play. The only way to play in the classroom, in our research, in the general world around us is honestly, I think, through experimentation. It is hard, very hard, to not want to just do things that you know for sure work in the classroom because you want your students to be successful, because you want you know course evaluations to be positive. But I think we need to be more open to this idea that playing on our end of things, even before we develop a space of play for our students, needs to be a willingness to say, I'm gonna give this a try. I'm going to see what will happen when I take this new evidence-based theory and incorporate it into my daily activities in the classroom. So what I'm advocating for is this idea of creating spaces intentionally and thoughtfully that encourage and allow for exploration, inspiration, perspective, and growth. And that, I think, are spaces of play. And don't get me wrong, eventually, as no doubt you are already beginning to think about because of where we are in the semester, grades have to be assigned, assessments of knowledge have to be measured, but I don't think that any of that is mutually exclusive with play because play always has consequences. There are always risks, rewards, and failures associated with an act of play. And play, when done correctly, requires dedicated effort and practice. So what we're asking and what we're developing as a sort of space of play is essentially the same things that we want from our students now it's just framing it differently and being more thoughtful about why we do the things we do. And so honestly, 
in terms of what we can do to foster play, it's all about thoughtfulness and intentionality. It's about thinking carefully about our language, for example, so that instead of saying you have to or you need to, it's instead we'll be doing this or here's why we're doing this. Here's why you need to know this. Um, it's about transparency of design. So when we play, we do certain things for certain reasons. So explain to your students why they're doing the things they are. Explain to them you're taking these quizzes every week as preparation for the larger exam. The specific formatting guide that I'm having you follow is not just because, it's to demonstrate the interests of the discipline in which you're writing and its emphasis on dates or locations. Let them know that the research paper is just not the thing one does at the end of a seminar class, but rather it's the continuation of a conversation that they've been having all semester long. What I find so meaningful about this framework of play as a way of thinking about our pedagogy is that we don't forget the cause-effect relationship that leads to success in play. We don't just tell people, hey, be sure to put that ball in that hoop. Sometime later, maybe I'll tell you why. We say put that ball into that hoop because that's how you score points. And I think it's easy as, as faculty to know the reasons why we do things and why we assign things, but to maybe not have articulated that relationship of here's what I'm having you do and here's how it's a, a indicator or a step in terms of success as you're playing and engaging in this exploratory behavior. And I think one of the best ways we can remind ourselves to think about things in terms of play and to articulate our ideas in the same way that we very clearly do when we're playing is to remember that because we are playing, our students should know about this playful aspect. They should see what excites us. This doesn't mean that we have a captive audience. This doesn't mean that like you should present them with 50 minutes of what will become a conference paper, but it does mean tell them what's working in your lab. Tell them how your subject matter pertains to the research that they're doing in this slightly different class subject. Or think about creating some sort of experiment or study that you can run alongside your students so that instead of it being as you work on your annotated bibliographies, you should know this. Instead, it's as we all do our annotated bibliographies, pay attention to this. And then you come back and you report out. One of the things I found that was really interesting in doing reading in preparation for this class was this. Here's how I think I might incorporate it into something I'm currently working on. We get excited when we are around people who are excited about something. And if you have someone who is showing you how to be both successful and playful, then you're going to be inspired by that model. And I think that's what we want students to start thinking about is not just the content that we're presenting them with, but how to be successful with that content. This leads to what needs to be a much longer conversation about the strengths and advantages of lectures and the strengths and advantages of more interactive learning. For now, in this framework of play, as we start to introduce this topic of, of how we can think about play and like moving forward, I just want to remind you that when we play, it is never just learning or doing. It is always a combination of both. Um, there's a fantastic Bollywood film called Lagan. It is a like three hour musical about the game of cricket. 
and it's as delightful as it sounds and if that doesn't sound delightful it's it really is a great film watching that film I realized I knew nothing about cricket but watching it I had a sense of like what it means when it, when they're running back and forth and and what it means to bat but I didn't know why they were running back and forth so much because it didn't make sense to me with my like baseball mindset until I went online and read the directions now when I watch that movie I understand why they're doing the things that they're doing but I still would not be able to play the game professionally without doing it some right like this so we need to think about the fact that when it comes to play it is about learning and doing that the best players are those who understand the principles and theories and have had a chance to practice them as well and so again what we do and what works in play works in playful practices in the classroom as well and so what can we do to have our students play practice have them engage in practice have low stakes assignments if we have something specific that we want them to do at the end of the semester give them multiple attempts at that same task or that same type of task so that they can practice that skill set play is not always easy but we're willing to do it until we get it right because it is framed within a space of trying failing revising and trying differently peter brown et al have a 2014 book called make it stick the science of successful learning in which they talk about the fact that we need to get people to start thinking of failure as not the antithesis of learning but as a stage of learning and if we do it right they say then people who are helped to understand that effort and learning together change the brain will learn to view failure as a sign of effort and as a turn in the road rather than as a measure of inability and the end of the road and so we need to build into our courses as much opportunities for practice as possible just as we do each and every time we engage in an active play if i were to sum up what it is about this framework of play that I find so intriguing and such a useful way of analyzing and thinking about pedagogy, it would be this. There are things that we do in play that, while they aren't natural, as in we have to work at them, feel natural and feel as though they are an obvious component. For example, connections. When we're playing, we're constantly building connections and seeing that as an integral part of the experience. And that might mean connections with other people, or it might mean connections between previous information and future information. When we're playing, we work at that skill set of building those connections because we understand how important it is and how it's just this natural component of playing successfully. But I think a lot of times in the classroom, especially, Building connections doesn't become as clear or as obvious of a skill set that is absolutely critical to success. A lot of times faculty will say, you know, students are really good at memorizing content, but they don't seem to be able to apply it. They don't seem to be able to engage in those higher order thinking skills. Why not? And the answer, honestly, is connections, or in this case, the failure to make connections. In the book, How Learning Works, the authors argue that one of the biggest things that separates an expert in a field in terms of knowledge and a novice in the field in terms of knowledge 
is how those knowledge organizations are built. And so they argue that one of the important differences is that there is a difference in the number or density of connections among concepts, facts, and skills that experts versus novices know. And what that means, or what they seem to be articulating in that part of their book, is this idea that a novice receives new information that goes, oh, okay, that's interesting. Where do I put that? How do I make that piece of information meaningful with what I learned last week, with what I'm gonna learn next week, with what the entire course is over? Whereas experts, we take a piece of information, we go, ha, huh, that's interesting, because I see some excellent connections between this and something I was thinking about last week and something I was thinking about um, in conjunction with this other thing that's related. In other words, we're constantly taking new pieces of information and building it into an existing repository that is suddenly linked by all of these new elements. And that's really what we want our students to get to in terms of where they're at by the end of a course, is we want them to be able to say, here's how this piece of information fits into the bigger picture of the course, into the bigger picture of my time as a major in this, in this discipline, or in my time as a student in a liberal arts education. This is our ultimate goal, is helping students to build connections. But how do we do it? I'm actually gonna pause for a second and make this a little bit less rhetorical of a question and give you an opportunity to actually try to come up with an answer to how do we get our students to build connections? There seem to be a number of answers to this question, as is always the case, right? There, there are multiple ways that we can help foster these connections in our students. One of them is this idea of giving students partial notes or partial outline. Studies have suggested that students do better when they have partial notes than when they actually get all the notes from their instructor. And the reason why is because they are then forced to build connections to connect the dots on their own, but they also have a framework that the teachers said, well, here's the big picture. It's your job to, to connect the dots in between the little things. The method I want to talk to you about today, though, is actually something that I had you do during that moment of, of silence, and that is prediction. And what's great about prediction is that it is just as usable of a method in humanities classes as it is STEM classes, in lecture-based classes as it is discussion-based classes. This is a really versatile tool to use. So Benedict Carey wrote in a book called How We Learn in 2014, and he also in 2014 wrote an article called Why Flunking Exams is Actually a Good Thing. And in that article, he talked about the power of what he called predictive activities. And he said these, and this is a quote from him, reshape our mental networks by embedding unfamiliar concepts into quests we at least partially comprehend. Even if the question is not entirely clear and its solution unknown, a guess will in itself begin to link the questions to possible answers. And those networks light up like Christmas lights when we hear the concepts again. Right, so what Carrie is talking about there is this idea that one of the ways to build connections is to force students to make those connections themselves by saying, okay, here is a previous piece of information now I want for you to posit a possible connection to this future set of information, to this future question, to this future answer. 
And this does not have to be a large part of your course design, right? This doesn't have to take up a huge part of those 50 minutes or 75 minutes that you have. In fact, James M. Lang, who wrote the book Small Teaching, suggests that predictive activities are a great five to 15 minute way that you can help build connections, do something very impactful, but have this sort of low stakes on your end of things in terms of time commitment. Now, there are a couple of things to keep in mind as far as predictions are concerned. The first is, is that surprisingly enough, studies suggest that wrong predictions do not actually seem to harm future learning. So long, and this is a big caveat, as learners receive immediate, that same class period, the next class period, right, really immediate feedback on the accuracy of their predictions so that they can make sure that those wrong answers don't leave deeper impressions in their brain than necessary. There are lots of ways that this prediction and the power of prediction can work in your class. But to think back to the idea of, of play, we say all the time, I bet. I bet I could get more points than you. I bet I can get there faster than you. Right? This is something that we do all the time. We make these predictions about, I bet I will win this game. I bet I will play harder than you. And we do that in part because it sparks our curiosity. Suddenly we have stakes in things, right? So I think that this is one of the reasons why something like fantasy football is so popular, because it's all about making connections between information you know and future possible outcomes, and then having a stake in whether or not your prediction is correct. And there's lots of different ways that we can engage in prediction activities. Pull everywhere questions, right? Okay, what do you think is the answer to this question? Everyone pulls in, and then you say, okay, here's the answer. What are your thoughts? Pre-tests. Give them tests before you actually get to some information and ask them to try to make connections. Give them a problem based on future content that you're going to teach them, but see if they can try to figure part of it out using past information. Because most classes that we teach are scaffolded. You're using the skill sets of section A to help you in section B. And what I like about this idea of the predictive activities is that it also lends itself just as nicely to STEM as it does to the humanities. So there are not as many opportunities usually in the humanities for can you solve this problem based on previous information. But you could do things like, what do you think was the outcome of this battle based on your prior knowledge about this civilization? Having read chapters one and two of this novel, what do you think is going to happen to this character? And actually forcing students to make that sort of interaction, to have that engagement, what it does is it sparks curiosity. It sparks this interest in using existing, existing information to inform our thoughts about new or unexpected situations and information. And essentially it's about making us be players that are actively involved rather than just sort of passive recipients of information we are forced to build those connections. So this brings me to the end of episode one. I started by introducing why I think play is an important and useful framework for having conversations about pedagogy. Then I offered some arguments about how play is something that can and should be taken very seriously before moving into some tangible ways that we can have ourselves be playful through transparency of design and through showing our students that we're playing as well as learning, as well as some things we can have our students do to engage them in play, from giving them more opportunities for practice to allowing them 
encouraging them, maybe even requiring them to predict future outcomes and to make connections based on previous and prior knowledge. As this podcast series moves forward, play is not going to be the explicit topic of conversation to the degree that it was for this first episode. Instead, it's going to become a framework for the conversations that we're having about pedagogy and about the scholarship of teaching and learning. And that's because I believe when we think of the adjectives that define us or that we aspire to when we think about who we are as professors, I think that in addition to terms like thoughtful, insightful, encouraging, focused, intelligent, we should add the word playful to the list. And what that means is that you're willing, maybe afraid, but willing nevertheless to try out new ideas, to refine and explore and experiment with new and innovative pedagogical techniques. And ultimately, it means that you are willing and excited by this idea of not just teaching students information, but teaching them how to themselves meaningfully, thoughtfully, and seriously play. Please join me next month for episode two, turning group work into teamwork, or what we can do about the fact that everyone hates being in a group.